Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. And this week we have a new Linux tablet, something that I think is worth mentioning because this is a device category we absolutely are lacking on Linux. And when there's a good one coming, you know I'm going to talk about it. We have SUSE going private. Uh, They're not going to be listed on any stock exchange anymore, going the opposite route basically of every other major Linux enterprise company. And we have the release of GNOME 45 beta, plus some cool features to highlight in that. And we have a lot more to discuss as well. So as always, all the links I use to create this show are in the show notes. And as always, you'll also find links to support the podcast in the show notes just as well. So let's begin with that new Linux tablet. So you might know about Star Labs. Uh, they're a company making laptops. Uh, I think they also have one small desktop, like the kind of mini PC, like a Mac mini equivalent. Uh, and they make those devices that run with Linux. What's nice about them is that they don't just reuse Clevo or Tongfeng chassis and then assemble the computers. They actually design all the chassis themselves Uh, So all their computers are completely custom and they're generally very, very well built, very solid. I reviewed a few on the channel. Uh, I think it was the Starbook and the Starlight. And so specifically the Starlight was their entry level laptop, a small, uh, I think it was 11 or 12 inch, uh, relatively affordable uh, in, in terms of custom built laptops. A good device. But now they're announcing the new version of the Starlight and it's moving from being a laptop to being some kind of Microsoft Surface equivalent, the complete form factor change. Uh, so you have a tablet, which you can slot into a detachable keyboard with a kickstand. And of course, it runs Linux out of the box, and it has been custom designed by them as far as I can tell. Uh, so it is powered by a relatively low power CPU. It's an Intel N200. So it's a quad core one gigahertz CPU. It has the ability to turbo boost to 3.7 gigahertz. But of course, in this kind of form factor, that turbo boost is not going to last long. There's not a lot of cooling. So it's a relatively small CPU, not very powerful, but probably more than enough to daily drive any Linux distro. It has 16 gigs of DDR5 RAM, which is really nice, 512 gigs of SSD, and options to push that to 2 terabytes, And it has a 12.5 inch touchscreen uh, running at 2880 by 1920. So it's what they call 3K resolution. It is a touchscreen, but it does not seem to have like digitizer or stylus support, unfortunately. Uh, The battery, I think, is 37 or 35 watt hour and should provide around 12 hours of screen on time, which probably because the CPU is so low power, you don't need a giant battery. And so the tablet looks relatively thin. It has two USB-C ports, uh, plus front and rear cameras. It has Wi-Fi 5, not Wi-Fi 6, unfortunately. It has a micro HDMI port, which I'm not sure why it's there, because if you have USB-C, you probably also have display out through these ports. Uh, And it has a micro SD card slot and a headphone jack. And you might be thinking it's a Linux device, so obviously they're going to charge like $800 for that. It starts at 500, uh, which for 16 gigs of RAM and 512 gigs of SSD is actually pretty cool. Uh, the CPU obviously must not be very pricey these days, but still, that's that's not a bad price. Uh, the backlit keyboard, though, is an additional $100. And as always with Star Labs, you're not getting every single keyboard layout on the planet. 
Uh, you've got like the QWERTY keyboards, US or UK versions. You've got a French keyboard, the Azerty layout. You've got the German Quartz layout and also Nordic or Spanish. Now, as with all uh, or at least most uh, Star, uh, Star Labs devices, it runs Core Boot. So the whole boot process is completely open source and free software. And they offer to pre-install a bunch of Linux distributions in there. But looking at the hardware and what's inside, apart maybe from the touchscreen, I don't think there would be any issues installing any other distro on it. And so it looks like a very cool device. And usually I would not use this kind of information as like the front runner on a news podcast or a news video. But honestly, Linux tablets, we don't have them. Uh, we have like ARM powered stuff from Pine64, but they're super chunky. The build quality isn't great. They're really, really low powered. Like they can't do much. And they're basically just dev experimental devices. And as per other devices, uh, we had the JinkPad, which didn't work out. They canceled the sale. Like they finally, I think they cleared the inventory for like $150 or $200. They stopped development on the OS. There's nothing happening in there. It's basically a paperweight. The bootloader was never opened as far as I remember. And it basically ran Android, the Android kernel. So it was never a really open hardware stuff. You could not really install any distro you wanted. Uh, and we also had the FIDE tab, which I reviewed on the channel. It's more of a Chrome OS tablet, uh, but they did have plans to open everything up so you could install some other things, but I haven't seen any news about it. I think they're only starting shipping to China right now. So yeah, basically we have nothing. Uh, you could always use a Microsoft Surface tablet, but support is kind of iffy. You need a special kernel to make things run and it's... Like, and you're giving your money to Microsoft as well, which, man, do you want to do that? Uh, so, yeah, it's really nice to finally have a good, solid, well, at least it looks good and solid. I haven't tested it, but it looks pretty decent. And if we can judge this tablet by the standard Star Labs have set for their own devices previously, honestly, I think it's going to be a good product because all the laptops are reviewed from them were really solid. They had issues, uh, mostly the usual webcam slash mic combo, which was pretty trash, as always in most laptops that I that I review. I never found one that had a good microphone or a camera, uh, apart from like the recent Macs. There's nothing good out there. Uh, but yeah, th their devices were really solid, aluminum built, and if the tablet follows uh, on the same footsteps, it might be a really good solid choice for a small portable device uh, if you really want to run Linux. And I think I might personally be very interested in that. So yeah, I thought I would report that uh, first because it's it's a really interesting device category that I think is underrepresented in the Linux world. Now for our second topic, we've got uh, SUSE. And SUSE, if you don't know, is a company that makes SUSE Enterprise Linux, which is basically the other major Linux distro apart from Red Hat and sometimes Ubuntu. Uh, and they're currently publicly traded. Uh, they were listed in the Frankfurt Stock Exchange because it's a German company. They are listed in Germany uh, in 2021, so only two years ago. And now they're going to stop being publicly traded. Uh, they announced that the majority shareholder intends to take the company private uh, by merging it with another entity that is located, I think, in Luxembourg. Uh, SUSE is currently majorly owned by a subsidiary of an investment firm. I think it's a Swedish investment firm. Uh, they will still retain control after the company is no longer publicly traded. 
But yeah, they're, they're just taking it off the stock exchange. And I think it's an interesting move. Uh, Sousa's CEO said it's a strategic opportunity. They had like a whole spiel, PR, corporate stuff. Didn't really say much. Uh, but I think what they really meant is that it gives them more leeway to focus on what they actually want to work on instead of having the pressure of publishing financial reports and trying to increase the profit growth all the time, not just increase profits, but increase the growth rate of the profits. And so it inevitably leads to decisions that really might not be in support of the best interest of your business in the long term. Uh, We have seen examples of that since Red Hat was purchased by IBM. Uh, it, there, there are issues uh, with that. You're trying to satisfy the shareholders and the investors on the stock exchange. And this means that you absolutely have to sometimes make decisions that are completely counterintuitive because in the short term, yes, this might increase your profits, but in the long term, it might damage your brand. It might put customers off. And when you're working in a normal enterprise space, and you're a regular company making like proprietary software or whatever, you probably don't care about this. But when you're working with Linux, you're basing a lot of your work on the work of others, generally profiting off of Linux. And I'm saying that just in the way of making profits off of a Linux-based product can be really badly considered by the community for some reason. It's like, yeah, you're using free software. You used it without paying anything and you're making money off of it. Some people think that's unethical, even though it's not, it's absolutely allowed by the GPL. So you're navigating a very different space when you're in the Linux enterprise sector. And probably not being listed on the stock exchange is going to be considered a huge plus in favor of SUSE, uh, at least where the community is concerned. And so, yeah, they're still a company. SUSE will still be a company. They will still have investors and people who have shares of the company, they will absolutely want the company to still make profits. But you don't have to satisfy dividends uh, for for shareholders. You don't have to try to raise the price of your shares. Uh, You just have to do some good business. So this plan to make SUSE private should conclude at the end of 2023. And I think it's really interesting when you compare SUSE to IBM or even Canonical. Because now you have SUSE that is going private, like We're just a normal company. We don't care about the stock exchange. We don't want to raise our prices, uh, the the prices of our shares. We don't want to chase like profit growth at all costs. And on the other hand, you've got Red Hat owned by IBM, which is definitely making some anti-community moves, uh, not to deny all the fantastic contributions they make to the whole Linux stack, but in terms of how they approach the community and their source code, they're definitely not the best ones. And you also have Canonical, Uh, which is not public currently. I don't think it's publicly traded, but they plan to uh, be publicly traded soon. Uh, They've been talking about their IPO for a long while now. And they're also making moves like the LXD project that they're now taking in-house and just kicking out every maintainer that is not working for Canonical. Uh, They have the Snap Store, still proprietary backend. They have a bunch of things that they're doing that are not well perceived by the community because, well, they're trying to increase their profit so their IPO can be successful. So I know which strategy I prefer personally. I prefer a company that is not traded. Uh, I prefer a company that is just trying to do business and trying to do right by their customers. I don't know if that's SUSE or not, but I, I actually like the approach of saying, you know what? Yeah, stock exchange, stuff like that, not for us. We're not doing it anymore. But yeah, we're... 
time will tell uh, which strategy is the best. Red Hat is still currently much bigger than SUSE in terms of revenue. They're 10 times bigger. And Canonical is just a quarter of SUSE. So yeah, interesting move and interesting times uh, for Linux Enterprise uh, with, with SUSE allying with Oracle to launch a foundation for, for distributing Red Hat Enterprise Linux source code freely to downstreams. Like, it, it's a weird space we're in right now for Linux Enterprise. And I think it's also pretty fun to watch from, from at least a distance. Okay, now let's talk about GNOME. And so the GNOME 45 beta is now out. The alpha was released, I think, a month ago or something. Uh, the beta brings a bunch of improvements on top of the alpha. Uh, you've got Mutter, which is the compositor for Wayland and also the window manager. Uh, they will now handle everything display-related, everything that communicates with the display hardware, in its own thread, uh, in its own process, which should result in smoother mouse movement, smoother window movement, and it should generally result in a much better experience when your computer is under load and you won't see stuff jittering all the time because like the compositor is trying to do too many things at once and so the mouse cursor is lagging behind or stuff like that. That's really, really good. And Mutter will also now support the YUV, Y-U-V, color model, which is used for a lot of TV shows and TV. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what the benefits will be in terms of day-to-day -day use, but yeah, that, that's another thing that is now supported. Uh, they also changed a few default apps. Uh, the default image viewer is now replaced by Loop, which is a new app that has been in development for, I think, at least a, a full year. Uh, it uses touchpad gestures or touchscreen gestures to navigate, to smoothly zoom in and out. Uh, they support more file formats. It's more sandbox, so it works. It's more secure in terms of how it renders SVG, stuff like that. It looks like a really fantastic application. They're also replacing Cheese, uh, the webcam utility probably no one uses, uh, by Snapshot. Snapshot, sorry. A, a new one that has been released, I think, a few months ago. Does the same thing. It just lets you preview your camera, take a picture or record a video from your webcam. Nothing incredible. They're also improving the file manager. Uh, they are porting the disk usage analyzer and the phone viewer to GDK4. This is now done. Uh, and apparently GNOME software will now force the use of its own software sources dialog uh, instead of letting the distro plug in what they want to use there. So I think Debian and Ubuntu used another software repository manager thingy uh, and now they probably won't have the option to do that easily unless they modify the code and apply a patch set. Uh, not sure why this change was made, uh, but they're making it. Probably they just want to make sure that people shipping GNOME software or distros shipping GNOME software uh, ship it as intended uh, instead of shipping like some kind of Frankenstein hybrid of, of stuff that might not work well together. Uh, so that's that's what's been added uh, since the alpha. I also saw the usual stuff about accent colors and the new fractional scaling settings. Uh, so obviously GNOME doesn't have accent colors currently. Some distros implement it on top of GNOME like Ubuntu or I think Zorin OS as well. But GNOME by default does not have support for that. Uh, it's been floating around like GNOME 45 will have support for accent colors, but I haven't seen anything uh, in terms of merge requests or stuff like that that would confirm that it's actually coming. Uh, so I guess I will have to try out the beta to see if it's in there. But I think if it was, it would have been reported more widely on and the fractional scaling thing is more, instead of choosing from 100%, 125, 150, they wanted to replace that with actual previews of the size of the text, uh, how the text will be rendered when you choose a specific fractional scaling setting. 
And so this is something I also wasn't able to confirm that will be part of GNOME 45 or not. So don't worry, I will absolutely give a good shot uh, to GNOME 45 before it releases so I can make my video about it. Uh, it's planned for release, uh, I think, at the end of September. So you'll get a dedicated video with all the features. Now, another feature that is coming to GNOME 45 that is very interesting is, uh, well, very interesting. It's a nice to have one. It's managing the keyboard backlight from the quick settings. Uh, most laptops that have a backlit keyboard have dedicated hardware keys uh, to change the intensity of the backlight or turn it off. Uh, but you didn't really have a way to do that in software. And so GNOME will be adding that when he detects that you have hardware that is capable of, uh, of changing the illumination. And so in the quick settings, you'll get a small button. You can click it to disable the backlight or enable it. Or you can click the little arrow uh, to change the intensity and the strength of the backlight. Of course, you get a slider, but some keyboards support like very a very wide range of, of light intensity. Some others have like two settings on and off. So, of course, the slider will not make your backlight super variable or smooth if your laptop only has one uh, light strength. And yeah, you could already manage this kind of stuff uh, using stuff like Slimbook RGB or the Tuxedo Control Center if you have a Slimbook or Tuxedo device. Uh, these still have more features because they will let you change the color of uh, the RGB on laptops that have that. Uh, but for regular non-gamery laptops that just have like white illumination on the keyboard, this should be a pretty nice change. It's a good quality of life improvement, basically. Okay, now let's talk about KDE. And the KDE Plasma developers have shared uh, a bunch more details about Plasma 6, and specifically this time about how they will handle icon themes in Plasma 6. Uh, so if you don't know, on Linux, icon themes tend to provide multiple sizes for each icon. You've got like the 16 pixel, 32, 64, 128, and generally a scalable uh, SVG format. Uh, basically, the goal is to have these icons looking right at each size. The issue is that these icon sizes generally also mean a complete change in the style of the icon at smaller sizes. For example, the 8x8 pixels or 16x16 16 pixels tend to be monochrome and symbolic because it's way easier to convey their meaning uh, when they're that small in a really nice black and white uh, symbolic look instead of trying to make it look detailed and 3D when you only have like 16 pixels of height. Uh, the bigger versions are generally fully colored. Now, this created a problem in Plasma for the longest time. Uh, for example, when you reduce the size of your panel, it still used the icon theme. And so it looked in the icon theme for the 8x8 pixel or the 16x16 pixel version of the icon. Uh, they automatically were uh, adjusted. And so they could move to full color versions in some cases and keep other monochrome icons uh, at the same time. So, for example, if you resize your panel to be... Uh, 16, uh, 16 pixels of height, you would use the 16 pixel size of the icon and some icons would be black and white and monochrome and symbolic and some icons would still be full colored and it would result in a very disjointed look and feel, uh, kind of forcing you to use specific panel heights that were in between pixels like, like 25 or 27 uh, to make sure that everything was fully colored or everything was fully uh, monochrome. So in KDE 5, they tried to solve that issue by adding Plasma-specific icons that sort of overread uh, the icons from the regular icon theme. But it still made theming sort of a mess because it was impossible to prepare an icon for every single widget that the user could install. And it was one more thing to think about 
uh, that developers forgot. And you could also have like those extra icons that override your theme. They could not match the rest of the theme at all. So it was a problem. It, it didn't work all that well. So in Plasma 6, they decided to go with the same convention as in GNOME. Uh, they will use only the icons from the icon theme and they will look for symbolic icons specifically where they need them uh, when the size requires uh, symbolic icons. And since Linux is sort of clever uh, in this regard, if a symbolic version doesn't exist, it automatically falls back to the non-symbolic version instead. Plasma developers shouldn't have much to do if their theme is made for GNOME and for KDE, but if they are making themes only for KDE, they might have to check their icon themes and create symlinks uh, to the smaller monochrome versions of their icons with the word symbolic appended at the end of the name. So Plasma knows that these are the ones you want to find and they just point to the monochrome version. It's not a huge change for developers, but I think it will result in much smoother Plasma theming. Things should look a lot more coherent. I know some people don't really like symbolic icons and they would prefer having those Plasma themes that still kept full color icons even at smaller sizes. But honestly, I think this change will be for the better for most people. And if you really, really want to get back to your fully colored icons, you can always just erase the icons you want to replace with a fully colored version. Now, on top of that, KDE developers are hosting the Plasma 6 wallpaper competition. So if you like making some nice art, if you like making wallpapers, if you're an artist, digital or otherwise, you can enter your creations uh, in the contest and you can win a Framework 13 laptop, the do-it-yourself edition, so you'll have to build it yourself. Uh, the guidelines are very simple. There are not that many restrictions. The themes they are looking for uh, is trustworthiness, personalization and personal growth. They, they want artists to convey these things uh, in their wallpaper. I have no idea how you convey these themes in a wallpaper, which probably is because I am not an artist. You can just look at my YouTube thumbnails to confirm that I have no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to digital art. Uh, of course, all the designs that you will enter have to be original. Uh, they must be uh, on the Creative Commons uh, by SA license, uh, version 4, I think. And they will not accept AI art, which I think is a good thing, because since it's still a legal gray area in terms of can you really freely use data to train an AI and then use that resultant uh, thing produced by the AI as your own works, I think it's good to avoid that. And also a lot of people really dislike AI art, so I guess shipping an AI art wallpaper by default in Plasma 6 would create some kind of, of controversy or something. So I think it's a good thing. Each person can submit up to three wallpapers. Probably the goal is to limit the number of options that the KDE team will have to look at and parse through to the side. And all the entries must be at least 4K in resolution, although they recommend something a little bit higher than that, uh, probably to afford for various display sizes to avoid stretching the, the wallpaper. And of course, you must be able to provide the sources to the wallpaper in non-proprietary format. So don't use PSD, uh, use X, uh, XCF for GIMP or an SVG or whatever. Uh, the winner of the competition will obviously have their wallpaper included as the default wallpaper in Plasma 6. I'm pretty sure they will also include a bunch of others uh, that entered the competition as various options, uh, but not the default. Uh, and if you win, obviously you will win a Framework Laptop 13. So I left a link to the announcement 
in the show notes if you want to participate, know the exact rules and where to enter your, your art, uh, you can click that. So I stumbled upon an article that I found interesting also this week, uh, talking about Linux and Firefox. Basically, the title is Desktop Linux has a Firefox problem. Uh, it's outlining a potential issue uh, of the over-reliance on Mozilla Firefox for virtually every single distro out there. Uh, I think a few might ship Vivaldi by default, maybe some have Chromium, but most Linux distros ship Firefox. And Firefox is undoubtedly losing market share very fast. Uh, they currently are only viable financially because they have a huge deal with Google uh, for including Google as the default search engine in Firefox. And this deal represents a vast majority of their revenue. If Google decided to not do that deal anymore because they don't feel like they need to, uh, probably the browser would lose most of its funding and most of its development leaving it uh, at least really hampered more than it already is and maybe even making them cut certain platforms. And obviously since Linux is the smallest in terms of market share from all desktop operating systems, they might very well stop working on Linux or at least stop contributing uh, on the Linux version as much, uh, even less than what Linux receives today. Because traditionally Firefox on Linux hasn't been the best version of Firefox. Uh, they took ages to bring hardware accelerated video decoding and currently it still only supports Intel CPUs. Uh, I think that it might be experimental for Nvidia and AMD, but it's still not turned on by default. Uh, touchpad gestures to go back and forward uh, when navigating also took ages to come to Linux after macOS and even Windows received them. Basically, Linux has never been like the first class citizen for Firefox. But for Linux, Firefox is the default browser that we ship to everyone. And so the article ponders whether the major Linux desktops should work on their own browser engine and their own browsers to stop our reliance on software that is mainly developed by Apple, namely WebKit, or by Google with Blink and Chromium. So obviously we already have these kind of browsers. We have Falcon on KDE. But like, it's really not that well maintained. It never sees any new releases and it's just not fantastic. And for GNOME, we have Epiphany, also called GNOME Web, which I never really had a good experience with. Like it failed to play YouTube videos. Every time you try to advance in a video, it stopped playing for me. Uh, it has performance problems on a lot of websites. It doesn't support extensions or, or not that many, at least no ad blockers, no tracker blockers, stuff like that. It's just not a day-to-day -day browser for a lot of people. And they're both using WebKit. Uh, well, I think Falcon even uses uh, the Blink engine uh, with, with Chromium. Well, it doesn't use Chromium, but it uses some parts of Chromium for the engine, I think. Uh, and Gnome Web uses WebKit. So these are pieces of technologies that we don't really have any good control over. Because while Chromium and Blink and WebKit are open source, they are still very firmly controlled by uh, namely Apple and Google, uh, which will refuse contributions that don't go in their favor. Uh, and so, yeah, we don't have first-class browsers that aren't Mozilla Firefox or Chrome. And of course, like the article kind of glosses over the real problem with trying to fork and maintain your own browser engine. It's a terribly time-consuming process. Uh, like forking even the, the Gecko rendering engine from Firefox and trying to maintain it uh, ourselves uh, as, as, I don't know, a conglomerate of Linux desktops or distros 
would be insanely time consuming. There's a reason Firefox, even with all their funding, is still behind uh, in virtually every benchmark out there, uh, still has less support from various websites, uh, still is slower than, than Chrome because it takes a lot of effort to make a good browser engine. And so I'm pretty sure the Linux community does not have enough developers or manpower to do that themselves. Uh, Firefox barely manages it. I don't think the Linux community could uh, do a better job of that. But it would be interesting to have like more contributions towards Gecko. Uh, uh, is it still called Gecko? It used to be called Gecko, the rendering engine from Firefox. Maybe they changed it. Uh, it would be interesting to have more contributions towards that and maybe have like a more native browser. Like for example, if you use uh, GNOME Web, Epiphany, I think it would be more interesting to use Epiphany with Gecko than with WebKit. Uh, because it would support a fully open source, fully community controlled engine instead of an engine maintained by Apple, which Apple forked from a, a, a KDE based rendering engine. It's an interesting problem. It's a potentially dangerous one as well, because the web browser is virtually the most important part of your desktop nowadays. A lot of people don't even use any applications, they just use a web browser. And if Firefox starts dying or stops supporting Linux correctly, then we might be in a bit of a bad situation because we're already having a hard time pushing people to try Linux to use it. They're already encountering a lot of problems with app compatibility when they're coming from other OSs and expect their applications to, to exist on Linux. And when they realize they don't, it's a hurdle. If the web browser experience on Linux uh, gets worse than on other operating systems, then we're really, really going to struggle uh, to, to keep people using Linux. Uh, myself, if, if the web browser starts being really crappy, I'm going to have to turn to another browser than Firefox. And that sucks because I really don't want to use anything based on Chromium. Of course, if Firefox died off or, or stopped supporting Linux because they didn't have the funds, we could always turn to Chromium. There are no ethical problems with Chromium apart from the fact that it reinforces the monopoly of Google. And Chromium on Linux will probably get better because now that Chrome OS will be a more regular Linux distro and will use the Linux version of Chrome instead of using a specific tailored for Chrome OS version, then maybe Chromium will progress faster on Linux and get better but you're still reinforcing the monopoly of browser rendering engines uh, from Google, which is not that great. So I hope, I really hope that Firefox will be able to, to make it, uh, to survive, to keep their funding and to gain some market share back, but I really don't see how they're gonna do that. And since we're talking about Firefox, there are still some improvements coming to the Firefox version of Linux. Uh, they haven't abandoned Linux. It was just an article pondering what could happen if Firefox uh, lost funding and stopped supporting Linux. Uh, so Firefox just gained support for the Wayland Fractional Scaling Protocol, which is nice because it means that Firefox will not look blurry on Wayland when fractional scaling is used. Uh, I think for now only KDE supports uh, that, uh, that protocol fully. I think GNOME is working on it, but I'm not sure that it's coming in GNOME 45. Uh, not 100% sure. This support will be disabled by default. You will need to set a preference in the about config page because it's still experimental, of course, but at least it's there. And Firefox also announced uh, 
sort of Linux related, they also announced that their Android version will get support for extensions at the end of the year. Uh, if I remember correctly, you could already install certain extensions on Android for Firefox, but it was pretty limited, mostly ad blockers, basically. Uh, now they will support a wider range of extensions, so developers can already test their extensions using a nightly build of the Firefox Android app, so they can prepare, make sure that everything is ready, and they can submit them uh, for inclusion on the Mozilla portal. Uh, they're planning for this uh, for the end of the year, so that's pretty cool. A uh, really nice advantage of running Android is being able to have the real Firefox version uh, synced with your Firefox account, uh, which means that you keep your bookmarks, you keep your passwords and stuff like that. And so having access to all your extensions as well is always really, really nice. And also on applications, we have an update to WPS Office on Linux. If you don't know what that is, it's an Office suite that exists for Windows and Linux. Not sure if they have a macOS version. Uh, it's made by a Chinese company, so you trust them or you don't, that's your stance on the matter. Uh, and they are proprietary, they are not open source. But they do support Linux, and they have really, really good uh, Microsoft Office compatibility, much better than what LibreOffice or even OnlyOffice offers, uh, so that's the advantage. It is not updated very often on Linux, I think it stayed on, the, on an alpha version for the longest time, uh, but now they have uh, an update, bringing an updated look with different colors, icons, but most importantly, fixes to the wording of many features, many buttons, many options, because of course it's developed by a Chinese company and generally Chinese companies tend to have wonky translations in English. Uh, it sort of feels like auto-translate and it never really 100% accurately represents uh, how you would say something in English. Of course, I, I am not the best person to talk about that because I am not a native English speaker. I'm French. Uh, but yeah, generally you can spot something made in China when they display stuff in English because there are some really weird uh, turns, turns of phrases. And it, it, it's generally funny and it doesn't completely destroy the experience, but it can be an annoyance. So that will be fixed. And of course, this update to WPS also makes the, the Office Suite more compatible. It now supports Ubuntu 22.04. I think they only ship it as a deb, uh, maybe an RPM as well. So yeah, they really had not updated that thing in a long time. So it's a, it's a solid update to have if you need a good Microsoft Office compatible uh, solution. You also have something called SoftMaker Office or FreeOffice, I think it's called now. Uh, which is also very, very highly compatible, but unfortunately also very, very proprietary. Now, in terms of privacy, we have a big security breach uh, with a lot of user data leaking from the Discord.io service. It's not Discord itself. It's an additional service called Discord.io. It's something that lets you create custom invite links to your Discord server. Uh, but it was apparently used by a lot of people. And so hackers stole data from 760,000 users, which is a lot. Uh, and this data includes a lot of information as well, like uh, Discord user IDs, email addresses, usernames, but also billing addresses, so real physical addresses, and the hashed discord.io passwords for a small number of people. This isn't Discord passwords, is the password you use to log in to discord.io if you didn't use the login using your Discord account. Now, in itself, it's not necessarily a huge issue, but it does mean that people can link your Discord username to your email address 
and thus potentially easily identify you, know who you are in real life, uh, and do anything bad that they want to do with that information. Uh, it can quickly become a problem, depending on the servers that you visit on Discord, uh, and your own personal orientations, preferences, ideas, beliefs, and whatever. So Discord.io is shutting down for the foreseeable future. Uh, the database is already on sale on Breached, which is a forum known for selling data stolen from various websites. And what's weird is that the person selling that stolen data said that it was not just for money uh, that they stole the data. Uh, they actually wanted uh, to tell Discord.io to remove offensive material from their website because apparently they accept links to any Discord server, including stuff that is highly illegal or harmful or, or really, really weird and, and yeah, just generally bad stuff. And so they, the hacker said that they were amenable to stop the sale of the data if Discord.io removed all that offensive material and links to all harmful servers. Weird, but I mean, okay. It's a weird way to try to wrap your, your theft into an ethical behavior, but yeah, no one's really falling for that. You still stole data. So if you use Discord.io to join some servers, be wary of potential spam emails or phishing attempts. Your email might be used for these kind of wonderful purposes. You shouldn't have to do anything on Discord specifically. It's not a Discord breach. It's an, it's an additional service, but it's still a lot of people and it was a very popular service. So that's why I'm mentioning it here. Okay, and now we're going to finish this episode with the gaming news. Uh, so first, it seems that the latest NVIDIA drivers are causing problems for Linux gaming with Proton. Uh, the problem seems to be related to creating Proton prefixes when you're installing a new game uh, through Steam. Uh, there's a setup process usually that involves installing a DirectX in the new prefix, because if you don't know, Proton creates a virtual C drive uh, to store all the data related to each game and all the optimizations and use the right version of Proton uh, to avoid like games all running on the same prefix and having conflicts in terms of the versions of DLLs that they use. It basically lets them do per game optimizations if they want to in specific Proton versions. And so it needs to install DirectX in this prefix. But the DirectX setup that it's using is a 32-bit executable which can't address more than 4 gigs of memory. And since NVIDIA drivers are getting heavier, it's enough to crash the setup process. Proton developers are already looking into it. They say that uninstalling other Vulkan drivers, like the Mesa drivers, for example, uh, if you don't need them, can help to avoid having all the drivers loaded at the same time and using too much memory. Uh, but it's not a universal fix. You can also apparently use Proton 7 for the initial launch of some games. It seems to work. And once the prefix is created, you can revert to a more recent version like Proton 8 uh, when you actually want to run the game. So it's a weird issue. It's a reminder that a lot of the backend for gaming, at least on Linux, is still 32-bit, including Steam. It might be time to port stuff to 64-bit. It's not like it's a brand new architecture like, why are we still carrying around 32-bit support on this kind of stuff? It's not really needed. So, yeah, we should really start porting all that stuff. Now, this week we also had the release of Wine 8.14, uh, which now supports dumping window, Windows, sorry, not Window, 
Windows registry files in WineDump, uh, which is sort of a log viewer for Wine, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and it, it also adds fixes for the 64-bit implementation of Wine. And it also has 30 bug fixes, uh, notably for games like Dirt 2, uh, The Settlers 2, Freelancer, Warframe for the Windows client for Steam, for Yuzu, the Switch emulator, if you want to run that using Wine for some reason, uh, for Civilization 6, or Spider-Man Shattered Dimension. So as always, you can expect all these fixes to land in a future version of Proton as well. Uh, we also have some progress on the AMD RADV driver to improve ray tracing performance. Apparently, they made a lot of changes in how the code is handled and how the ray tracing pipelines work, and it seems to triple performance in Hitman 3, which is very impressive. Uh, on other games, the results are less impressive, but they're also really, really good. Uh, so all this code should land in Mesa 23.3 for everyone to enjoy, uh, and that's really nice. It should land, uh, I think, in the second uh, half of the year, so, well, we're already in the second half of the year, but it should land before the end of the year, basically. Um, me personally, I don't use ray tracing anywhere, uh, even on my NVIDIA GPUs where it's sort of relatively well supported. I just don't feel the difference in how a game looks. Uh, I don't feel that this difference justifies the performance hit. Uh, but yeah, if the performance improves significantly, then maybe I will start enjoying pretty lighting. Like, sure, running Cyberpunk with ray tracing looks really really good even though the game looks absolutely stunning without it it looks much better with it but i am not dropping down to 30 fps for that and now we have some details about the performance hit uh, and mitigations in place uh, for various vulnerabilities so the linux kernel received the fix for the zenbleed vulnerability that affects the amd apu that the steam deck uses uh, the steam deck is not affected by the most recent inception vulnerability but it is affected by another one called Zenbleed. And so the patches to fix that are in the Linux kernel now. Well, will be released when there's a new version of the Linux kernel. Uh, whether Valve decides to ship the fix or not, we will have to see because as with all mitigations, it comes with a performance penalty. I hope it won't have too much of an impact because the Steam Deck is a very constrained device on some titles. If you try to play AAA games, it can already struggle to maintain a very smooth 30 or 40 FPS. And so if those mitigations have an impact of even 1 or 2 FPS, it's gonna make a big difference in how good the gaming experience can be. Uh, like going from 60 to 58 FPS or going from 30 to 28 is a big impact. Like 60 to 58, you're probably not going to notice it. 30 to 28, you will absolutely feel it when you play. So I hope these patches won't be too harsh on the Steam Deck so it can keep being an awesome gaming experience. And since we're speaking about performance hit, uh, Foronix benchmarked the performance penalties of the recent mitigation patches for the Inception vulnerability for AMD, uh, the other one that I talked about, I think, last week. And it looks like it won't be too bad uh, for most users. Uh, the big performance hit comes apparently for people managing big databases and they will definitely feel it uh, on their servers. But us regular users on our desktops or us gamers shouldn't really see any difference, which is really good. It's super annoying to lose performance on your pricey hardware, like you just bought a new CPU and boom, you're losing 5% because there was a physical vulnerability that needs a mitigation patch. That really sucks. 
Now you could always disable these mitigations with a kernel boot parameter because that's Linux, you can do whatever you want, uh, but then you're risking the security of your device and the file it contains. So yeah, it's not a good choice to be put in to choose between your good performance or your security. So this will do it uh, for this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Uh, it's August. It's not like groundbreaking news. I realize that. But yeah, that's what we have. Uh, I'm not inventing them. I'm just reporting on that. So I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, all the links, if you want to learn more about any specific topic, they're all in the show notes. And if you want to support the show, if you like it, there are also plenty of links in the show notes as well. So thanks for listening. And I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye.